You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, and today I'm talking with Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik about his new book, Providence and Power. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik serves as the director of the Yeshua University Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought, and as rabbi at Congregation She'ereth Israel in New York, the oldest Jewish congregation in the United States. And then Providence and Power takes a deeper look at 10 uh, Jewish statesmen in Jewish history so to get things started, can you tell me a little bit about how you chose the 10 people uh, featured in this book uh, to exemplify Jewish statesmanship? Sure. So the title, Providence and Power, gets at the heart of what I think is the biblical ideal of statesmanship, uh, which is uh, essentially the following. Uh, a truly great statesman uh, draws on a unique gift that he or she has. Uh, and, of course, it's quite natural that the statesman would see one's achievements as one's own. And yet, biblical statesmanship, exemplified first and foremost with uh, the most famous uh, statesman of the Bible, King David, asks for something which is uh, quite difficult, which is to, on the one hand, recognize one's gifts and to make those gifts manifest militarily and politically, and yet to see the reflection of those gifts as providential, as a gift of God. And so we often look to uh, King David as someone who brilliantly was able to defeat, let's say, Goliath. Uh, and indeed, he is such a man. And yet D David famously, and yet David famously uh, gives the credit not to himself, but rather to God, saying, you come to me with a javelin and a spear, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he says earlier to King Saul, uh, when he's giving his resume, as it were, I was able to defeat with my own hands a lion and a bear. And it sounds like he's speaking about his own gifts, but then he adds, the God that saved me from the lion and from the bear, he will save me from the Philistine. And so uh, that's, what biblical, uh, that's what biblical statesmanship actually is. And there's so few statesmen in history, actually, uh, that reflect this. I once asked uh, uh, my friend, the historian Andrew Roberts, whether he could name any great European statesman that reflected uh, humility. Uh, and he said, no. And so uh, what I begin with is exemplars of this ideal of biblical statesmanship, and both uh, and, and I end with an exemplar of that as well. And I also show in the book other examples in Jewish history where the focus of the statesman is, is not on providence, and yet the sheer unlikelihood of their story is itself, I argue, the greatest evidence for the providential nature of Jewish history. So that's how I chose these statesmen, either because of the way they made manifest the feeling of providence in their own remarkable lives, or how providence was made manifest in their lives, whether or not those leaders were focusing on providence itself. Which of the ten exhibits uh, sort of statesmanship the most? Well, uh, the biblical ideal of statesmanship, as I, as I mentioned, is King David. Uh, and then I conclude uh, with my own hero, uh, who I think is the great exemplar of this biblical ideal of statesmanship in our own time, which was the late uh, Israeli Prime Minister, Menachem Begin. Uh, we're talking about somebody who, uh, at various moments in his life, engaged in incredibly daring 
acts. He led a revolt against the British Empire uh, while uh, Britain was uh, ruling the Holy Land. And then much later in life as prime minister, he ordered uh, the operation that uh, essentially became the inspiration for the recent movie Top Gun Maverick, which was the strike on uh, the Iraqi nuclear reactor at Osirak. Uh, that operation was so daring and so surprising and so unexpected that people didn't even believe that it happened after the Israeli government had reported that it happened. And so this was, on the one hand, an incredibly proactive and strategically brilliant operation. And yet after it happened, Begin sees in this event not, me- not only an example of the courage and brilliance of the Israeli Defense Forces, though of course he does see that, but he also sees the hand of God in the remarkable story uh, that is the history of the Jewish people. And so I begin with David, and I end with Menachem Begin, and I have many other different uh, portraits of statesmen, uh, both men and women, uh, in the book. Uh, Queen Esther is one uh, in, in a very, very different way, and in a much more surprising uh, example. I speak about uh, Benjamin Disraeli and the role that Jewish history played in his life. Um, but I begin with David, and I end with Menachem Begin, because I see uh, them as, uh, in a certain sense, parallel to each other as far as the uh, Jewish ideal of statesmanship is concerned. Uh, You mentioned sort of how God plays a role in all this. Can you expand more about what um, that looks like for the modern-day person uh, as far as how does divinity play a role in statesmanship? Sure. So uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because um, this is not uh, something you see that often today from statesmen in general. And yet, uh, in an interesting way, uh, I remain, in an interesting way, you do see it at certain moments in, uh, uniquely in American history. So if you uh, take it as an example, Abraham Lincoln... Abraham Lincoln is overseeing some of the most important moments in American history and is at times making the most daring decisions in American history, such as, uh, let's say, the Emancipation Proclamation, which was itself something that was an incredible step forward and an incredible act of leadership. And yet, at the same time, if you look at Lincoln's musings and writings about these moments, there's one letter where he says, at at times I feel that I am not controlling events, but that events are controlling me, something like that. And that he felt that the story of the United States was itself so remarkable that he's somehow part of a larger plan that he can't fully understand. And of course, he, he makes this very clear in, in what I think is the greatest speech in American history, the second inaugural, which is really more of a sermon than an inaugural address. And, and is exactly what you wouldn't expect at the end of a war when he's about to emerge the victor. It's rather than just being a celebration, he doesn't say USA, USA. He, he, he muses with the American people, why has this happened to us? What is God trying to tell us? And so precisely because we don't see that often in America today, I thought it was important uh, to uh, write a book from an American, for an American audience about a biblical ideal of leadership, because uh, it's uh, precisely in America that I think we have uh, a parallel, at least at certain moments in our history, to the form of statesmanship uh, that I describe. 
There are incredible statesmen in European history. I know Hillsdale has a, a program, and uh, I think a course, uh, about uh, the greatest statesman of the 20th century, which was Winston Churchill. Um, and he was indeed the greatest statesman of the 20th century. But no one would ever call him humble. Uh, and as the uh, historian, and as Andrew Roberts writes, uh, Churchill did believe in God, but in, in Churchill's theology, God's job seemed to be largely taking care of Winston Churchill. Uh, and of course, that wasn't his belief in his greatness, and in the fact that he had been destined for greatness was a source of his strength, and I don't decry it. But uh, it, biblical leadership is something different. And we do see moments like that and forms of leadership like that in American history. But of course, not too often today. Uh, and so uh, I thought it was uh, a notion of statesmanship that was worth sharing, not only with a Jewish audience, but with an American audience at large. So you mentioned sort of Churchill's lack of humility, which, yes, we do have a course on him. I walk yes. by his statue yes. every day, pretty much. Yes, um, exactly. What can people take away from the Jewish statesman that maybe they couldn't take away from someone like Churchill? Uh, the, one of the stories that uh, if, if you study Churchill, if you read some of the great biographies of Churchill, for example, William Manchester's uh, uh, The Last Lion, he opens in his introduction uh, a story where Churchill gets into a fight with his butler. And uh, after the fight, the butler says, to, uh, Churchill says to the butler, you were, you know, you were very rude to me. Uh, and the butler says, well, you were rude to me as well. And Churchill says, yes, but I am a great man. <laughs> and then interview with Manchester, the butler says, you know, he was right. There's nothing you can do about it. He was right. So Churchill knew he was a great man. Uh, and that was the source of his, that was in a certain sense, the source of his strength. But of course, King David was a very great man. When you read his psalms, you will never see him say that. It, it will be a reflection on uh, what does it mean to be part of something much larger than myself or ourselves. And I am somehow a vehicle in God's plan. I am simultaneously an independent actor and also part of this unfolding of history in which the Jewish people are an incredible part. Uh, now, uh, what we can learn ab ab from that, uh, first of all, is that uh, as Americans, uh, America at some of its most important moments uh, saw a parallel to its story uh, and that of biblical Israel. Uh, there was a reason why Franklin's suggestion for the seal of the United States was Moses uh, at the splitting of the sea with the model rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. There's a reason why Washington uh, compared the unlikely story of the American Revolution uh, to uh, the exodus from Egypt. It's because uh, they felt at times that this story is so unlikely and so incredible that only providence can purely understand it, uh, explain it. And so uh, when I'm asking for, uh, when the Bible asks for statesmen to exhibit humility, it doesn't, of course, mean that what is being asked is that uh, leaders should be passive, then they wouldn't be leaders. But it does mean that uh, in the biblical context, uh, that Jewish leaders are asked to see how 
extraordinary and how seemingly unexplainable Jewish history is, that there is a people that has uh, been tiny its entire existence, that has existed for thousands of years, that has endured and outlasted all attempts to destroy it, even as the empires that sought to destroy it are now on the ash heap of history, uh, and that this is meant to motivate them in the way they think. They're supposed to ask, how will Jewish history remember me? If the Jewish people have been around for thousands of years, how will this decision be remembered by the Jewish people a thousand, two thousand years from now? In the American context, it's a little bit different, and yet, uh, uh, the the uh, at its, some of its greatest moments, uh, American leaders saw a parallel between their country and the tale of biblical Israel in terms of the providential nature of its story, and they've allowed that realization to motivate and to guide and to inspire them. So then, in today's society, which seems to me to be increasingly forward-focused rather than, you know, learning necessarily from history in the same way, what can people take away from these parallels, from talking about Lincoln and then seeing how these people uh, sort of have connections to David and Esther and some of these uh, historical figures? How can we reconcile that? Well, I think first of all, the only way to uh, the only way to truly understand our future is to understand our history. Uh, and of course, as Americans, that means first uh, understanding the actual story of the American people uh, and what our founders uh, believed and what our leaders believed. You know, um, I often tell the uh, the joke uh, that about uh, two Americans visiting. Uh, visiting England, touring, and they go to Runnymede, and the tour guide says, it was here at Runnymede that King John was first forced to sign the Magna Carta, uh, the uh, first, uh, an important step forward in the rights of man. Uh, and uh, one of the Americans says, uh, when, when, when did this signing of the Magna Carta happen? Uh, and uh, the guide says, 1215. And the American turns to the American and says, it's 12.30 now. If we'd gotten here 15 minutes ago, we could have seen it. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so the point is, um, uh, America is, is uh, a, a young country, but it's also the longest living, it's also the longest continuous democracy, for all the fact that we are a young country. Uh, and it is an incredible story in the advancement of, of the rights of mankind. Uh, and the striking thing is that um, that uh, more often than any other people, its leaders look to the story of biblical Israel uh, in its in its most dire moments. Meaning, more often than any other people aside from the Jewish people itself, uh, Lincoln made references to David. Uh, 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 references to Moses were made by the founders. Um, and uh, what we need to do, I think, is to, as Americans, is to, is to rediscover, is to rediscover their stories, because they're so important to, uh, obviously, for all, they're important for, for Jews as part of their history, but it's important as part of American history as well. The other aspect I would, I would emphasize is one of the fascinating phenomena today, uh, something that I believe is actually providential as well, 
speaking as a Jew, speaking as a rabbi, is that uh, uh, in America, uh, and uh, in America we have uh, the incredible phenomenon of of so many non-Jews who are deeply inspired by the story of the modern state of Israel and see in it, rightly so in my view, uh, the fulfillment of, of biblical prophecy. And so in a certain sense, uh, the providential nature of Jewish history has become a source of faith uh, for both Jews and non-Jews uh, around the world, especially at a time uh, when, uh, in at least certain spheres of culture, uh, faith, uh, traditional biblical faith, is uh, sneered at or looked down upon, uh, the, the story of, uh, of Israel becomes uh, a beacon uh, for 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 faith itself, and and that's a phenomenon that that, that I've that, that I've seen. Uh, it's a phenomenon that uh, friends of mine have commented upon to me, um, and so uh, I, I think there's a, a great deal uh, to learn from and to be inspired by when we study uh, not only uh, biblical stories such as those of David and Esther that meant so much to Americans in the past, uh, but also to study uh, the story of, of modern Israel which, uh, thank God, means so much uh, to so many Americans right now. Talking about modern Israel, how can some of the the things that you talk about in the book, some of the lessons that you can take away, apply to the modern situation of uh, the Holy Land? Well, uh, the first, the first uh, thing we need to uh, speak about is the fact that the story is itself uh, so unlikely, uh, and uh, because uh, we're, we're speaking about a, a situation in which uh, a people were exiled from their land for almost two thousand years, and yet uh, and yet returned in a series of events that are itself both uh, an incredible series of, of acts of leadership, but also entirely unlikely moments that I think uh, only Providence uh, can, can explain. And uh, you have uh, an assimilated Jewish journalist uh, named Theodor Herzl in Vienna, who suddenly decides that uh, the Jewish state can be founded if only uh, the Jews have the political will uh, to achieve it. Uh, he writes a pamphlet making this case in 1897, suddenly embracing his Jewish identity. And by the early 1900s, he's, he's dead. Uh, sitting in a hotel in Basel uh, at the meeting of the first Zionist Congress that he's brought together, uh, he writes the words in his diary, uh, in Basel, I created the Jewish state. Uh, may, people may laugh at it now, but maybe in five years, maybe in 50 years, people will see it. And Essentially, uh, almost exactly 50 years from when he wrote that, uh, the UN passed the partition plan, which was uh, the final uh, important moment before the actual declaration of of the uh, of the of the of the founding of of the state of Israel. And, and so, uh, the question, I, the famous statement that Theodore Herzl said is, "If you will it, it is no dream." So that's what he said. 
which is a way of saying anyone can achieve what people can achieve anything they put their mind to it. So that's what he said. Then you have the Six-Day War, uh, in which uh, in 1967, suddenly, Jews returned to ancient Jerusalem after being banned from it for 19 years by Jordan. And the events of the Six-Day War were so seemingly striking um, that the uh, essay, the Jewish essayist Milton Hilmafar wrote uh, something like, he said, I think his phrase was, about the wonder of Jewish history, that the Jews, the Jewish people, are smaller than a small statistical error in the Chinese census, yet we remain bigger than our numbers. Big things happen uh, around us and to us. And so the question, of course, is when we speak of modern Israel, what's the lesson of modern Israel? Is it a story about human effort and human will that created uh, a state, that created what is now in the title of the book by my friend Dan Senor, Startup Nation, a flourishing democracy. Is it a story of human achievement, or is it a story of providence? Uh, the answer, of course, the answer, of course, is is both. Because uh, without human achievement, without great leadership, it would never have happened. But only providence uh, can truly explain it. Just as only providence can truly explain well, the story of the Jewish people in general. Uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, comes from uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the writer, uh, the the great uh, the great American novelist Walker Percy, the Catholic novelist. Yes, I have heard um, him. Yeah, so he has an amazing quote uh, where he essentially says, uh, where he compares the Jews to the Hittites. Now, the Hittites were, of course, the the had the most important empire uh, in the area of the Holy Land at a certain point. So what he said was the following. He said, where are the Hittites? Why does no one find it remarkable that in most world cities today there are Jews, but not one single Hittite, even though the Hittites had a great flourishing civilization, while the Jews nearby were a weak and obscure people? When one meets a Jew in New York or New Orleans or Paris or Melbourne, it is remarkable that no one considers the event remarkable. What are they doing here? But it is even more remarkable to wonder if there are Jews here why are there not Hittites here? Where are the Hittites? Show me one Hittite in New York City. So, uh, uh, one of the things uh, that if we ask, what are the lessons of modern Israel? The lessons are both modern and ancient, because it's simultaneously a story in what great statesmanship can achieve. The building of an army, the flourishing of technology, which caused the desert to bloom, uh, the creation of a water technology is... It's been written about recently that is now being taught all over the world. Irrigation that can create plants in the desert, fruits in the desert. Um, but it's also a story uh, that uh, indicates that uh, history itself is uh, providential in nature and that there is a divine director of this drama. Israel is the greatest evidence for that, which is why, of course, I think Israel attracts the ire of some people who very much deny that. Uh, and, uh, but it is a lesson, I think, that we can learn. To bring it back to one of the Hillsdale heroes, which is uh, Churchill, uh, in, as, as, as you no doubt know, uh, Churchill, uh, uh, as a reward for basically saving civilization, 
the people of Britain decided to throw him out of office, uh, you know, while the World War was still going on, and elected Clement Attlee. So uh, by the time, uh, by the time that uh, Churchill, uh, by the time that the state of Israel was founded, Churchill was the leader of the opposition. And the Labour foreign minister, Ernest Bevern, uh, refused to recognize the state of Israel, even though the major world powers had already recognized it, so it made no sense. Uh, the United States had recognized Israel, Soviet Union had recognized Israel, uh, and, but yet Britain was still refusing to recognize Israel. So Churchill got up to say that this made no sense, and then he said something like what he says to Bevan, he says, you're treating this like this is just an event of the 20th century. Because whereas this is actually an event that has to be seen within the perspective of a thousand or two thousand or three thousand years, this is an event in world history. And so, in, in, a, in, a, in a counterintuitive way, the study of modern Israel, just what's happened to it in the last 50, 60, 70 years, should be the ultimate inspiration for everybody to study world history, because it's the ultimate indication that in uh, for those who tend to see things uh, purely from the perspective of uh, contingency, or even just purely from the perspective of individual human leadership, uh, this the Jewish state is a reminder that, uh, to paraphrase Hamlet, that uh, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. My name is Megan Pitcock, and I've been talking to uh, Rabbi Mayor Solovichik about his new book, Providence and Power. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Find more conversations like this at RadioFreeHillsdale.com. Once again, you've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.